Welcome to the Boston Translations Podcast. I am your host, Michael, and I am joined today with Leah from Hide and Seek, and we are talking about Faces in the Crowd by Valerie Lasselli, and this is a book translated from the Spanish by Christina McSweeney, and this is from Coffeehouse Press in 2014. Before we start, I just want to give you a brief warning that there seems to be a lot of dogs barking in the background. I'm sorry about that. It can't be helped. Do you want to introduce yourself, Leah? Hi, my name is Leah and I am an avid reader and I've been following Michael for a little while trying to con him to come back to BookTube and I do like to talk a lot about Australian books and I thought I would jump in talking about a translated book that I don't read enough of. Yeah, I think I found your channel because you were complaining I wasn't making videos <laughs> That's right. I whinge a lot. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to know who's watching unless they comment <laughs> and then you find the people. That's uh, right. So, yeah, you normally read a lot of Australian books. I, I read um, a diverse range. I do try to read lots of Australian books, but, um, yeah, look, I don't read enough translated fiction, but when I was looking back through my shelves, I've read quite a fair bit and quite diversely as well, so... This is interesting and I'm very much looking forward to the chat. I have noticed you are reading War and Peace, which is an excellent choice. Oh, that's been going on for ages and the reason I'm stuck on that, and it's such a stupid reason, I have one of those beautiful cloth-bound classic editions and I don't carry it with me and I have it on my Kindle and I hate reading on my Kindle and so no. I just I need to pick myself up like a $5 second-hand copy because I'm really enjoying it, but I can only read it at home. And so it's taking yeah. me forever. I'm the same with the Kindle. I don't enjoy the book as much if I'm reading it on Kindle. No, I, I think I spend all day staring at computer screens. I very much like the tactile yeah. thing. Library books are no good because I have all these Post-it notes in there rather than scribbling on the book themselves. So, um, yeah. No, but translation's been good and this is – I read last year the – oh, who wrote it? The um, signposts at the end of the world and the transmigration of bodies, That those two Mexican novellas as well, they were really interesting but so different when it came to Spanish translations. Yeah, Have you read those? Uh-huh. I, I haven't read those. I can't even remember who wrote those. I'll find that. I, um, they, were, they were interesting, very much more in the gangster, Mexican gangster sort of telenovela yeah. style of, yeah, no, it was good. But you're definitely the um, translation king these days. I don't know if I'd say that. I have fallen down the rabbit hole and the more I read, the more I prefer them. Why? Why? I don't know. They just have different styles. I think every country and every region like, has a unique storytelling perspective. Then. I think that's really true because I read... 
Frankenstein in Baghdad recently and I'd read other books that were from similar regions, yeah. um, but they weren't translated in Arabic from the Arabic. They were written in English by people who were writing in that style. And so the it's a different structure and a different format that we that we're used to here in yeah. Western literature. And I think it's getting your head around that, which is interesting as well, adds a second layer to the story. Yeah, that was a really good book. I really enjoyed that one. Look, I really enjoyed that. It was like a whole lot of different snapshots of um, just the whole aspect of the war and the different people, and I, I found it to be really interesting. But then also a couple of months ago I read Macbeth by Yo Nesbo, and that was my first ever Yo Joe Yo Nesbo book as well. And I don't oh, tend yeah. to do Scandi thriller crime things, but um, – I really liked that. I thought that was brilliant. I don't really like him that much. I am very particular when it comes to my crime books. Well, that's right. I don't read them at all, but I think it worked well. The pared-back language suited both the setting in the 1970 Scotland plus the theme of Macbeth. I just thought it worked really well, but I don't know if I'd go and pick up another one from him, but I did enjoy that. So that's my translation journey this year. Yeah, I have noticed that they don't really market it as translations. No, I, I know. It's very hard to find the translator. Like the publishers and everyone don't seem to want to tell people that that's a translated piece of literature. Yeah, it is very interesting. I guess it's a marketing ploy as well. They're just selling it as, you know, the big blockbuster and people want to see it as accessible rather than something foreign and alien, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast is because people do seem to think these are foreign or high literature, but that's not always the case with translation. Well, that's right. Like As you said, I'm ploughing through war and peace, but I – read Dr. Jivago last year and that was just a rollicking good story, a perfect mix of history and melodrama and romance. It was look, it was just fantastic. Oh, I just I loved love it. Dr. Jivago. Oh, it was brilliant. Did, did you read the there's a book out there um, talking about the backstory of Dr. Shivago, talking about all the what was going on with the CIA trying to publish the book and the Soviets trying to suppress the book. Oh, really? No, I didn't know anything about that. No, no. it was an amazing history and there was a lot, a bit about the fights Boris Pasternak was having with Vladimir Nabokov because mm. they wanted Vladimir Nabokov to write the translation for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. But, that yeah. sounds awful. Fascinating. But, yeah, it was just like the high melodrama and I thought it was just a great way to go. I did know you just you read The Vegetarian as well, but I think you didn't like that one. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, too dark? Too hopeless, as in not awful hopeless, hopeless as in just no, like dark, no no light in it at all. I just found it so oppressive, so, so 
Oh, it's just so heavy, so dark, so, oh, I could see no light. Like dark stories are okay, but you need light in a dark story. Otherwise, you sort of become immune to it. And, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I think that might have been what she was going for there. <laughs> oh, 100%, 100%. Yeah. And I'm more guessing that's me as the reader. And that was another one where I'm, I felt culturally detached from it. I could appreciate the story and the nuances and the language and the style, I just couldn't, I couldn't empathise with any of anyone in that. I couldn't find any connectivity at all. (laughs) Whereas in Faces in the Crowd, I could find glimmers of, you know, oh, yeah, okay, I get that. Whereas with The Vegetarian, I couldn't relate to, and that's anybody. And, I mean, that was the foreign nature of the, story and the style and yeah oh yeah yeah i might try human acts but i need a bit of distance before i try human acts i think i don't know i haven't read human acts but maybe try the white book yeah okay that's a lot different it's more a reflection of her own personal journey her grief and the connection to the color white Okay, I will. I'll go. I'll go and look for that. And look, I am an adventurous reader, I guess, but I, I need to. I don't need familiarity. I, I don't need to see what I know, but I, I need to have some level of connection to something there. And I just, I just, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't find a. I struggled. I struggled, but I still am thinking of the book all the time. So that's, you know, that's a sign of a good book. Yeah. Well, you are an adventurous reader. Like I tried to get you to pick the book for the podcast. Uh, you were willing to let me pick. That's right. Look, I, honestly, I I am neither highbrow nor lowbrow. I'll try anything and everything. And I, I think that's, you know, a bookish balanced diet, I guess. You know, I'll, I'll try anything. So I, yeah. I'm always interested because you know, read a lot more translated fiction than I. So uh, I would steer you into something safe. It was good for me to try something that's not safe at all. So that was good. Well, I didn't know much. I read her before, her book. I think it's called The Story of the Tooth, which is a really different and interesting story, a lot to do with teeth. Okay. Uh, But, yeah, I picked the whole range of, books for you and we ended up because yeah, well, they, they had it at my library so that was a bonus because where I live oh. there you know getting translated fiction can be a bit of a challenge unless I order online so um yeah so I know what, that feeling. <laughs> yeah so what drew you to this book um honestly I picked the, this one and I also gave you suggested sidewalks by her yeah. mainly because they both sounded interesting. This one talked about is about a translator, so I thought that would be interesting to discuss the art of translations as well. And that's really interesting. And in in my book here, I've got um, you you can see, but nobody else will be able to see the yellow <laughs> notes, the yellow stickies in my notes, but the blues are the different themes. And the one that keeps coming up that I've written for themes is that translation. Um, interpretation of reality versus imagined 
history and that yeah. perception and my perception of an event versus your perception of the event and how that translation theme carried all the way through. And if you're being really meta, then us as the reader reading the translated version is like adding even a fourth and fifth dimension to the whole story. And I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. definitely vape for an interesting read. Yeah, look, to get to this book in a nutshell, Faces in the Crowd by Valeria Luizielli. Luizielli. It's a tricky one. Yeah. I, I really, I thought this book was a cracker. Look, I don't, I don't know how to rate it. Once I got my head around the dueling timelines and the different voices popping in and out, I really was sunk right into the story. I actually really enjoyed it up until the last 20 pages, then I got a bit lost. But um, I found it fascinating. I thought it was great. What did, what did you think? Oh, I really enjoyed it. The narrative style was probably the hardest thing to get my head around as well. That's why I um, said I was going to read it again because the first time I sort of plowed through it and I kept getting distracted, whereas I had today off and I just sat there and read the whole thing this morning. And to read it in one sitting was actually really good because you could just sort of see yeah. the whole structure of the book um, in its entirety, whereas when I'd read it in chunks when I was busy during last week, it sort of lost that continuity, that thread through the whole book. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. To explain the narrative a little bit, you have the story of her in New York as a translator, then you have the story of, her back in Mexico, I believe, with her husband and their sons. And then you've got this other narrative of the husband reading about her life in, in, in New, New York. In New York, yeah. And then you and don't I, know true or not yeah. true. Yeah, and it's like just as I started to understand that, then they threw with the narrative of Gilberta Owen as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that really threw me off when they had him in. It's like, who is this person? Yeah, it took me a while to get my head around the third voice that sort of came in there. But once I sort of worked out that that was playing with the different voices and how yeah. um, Gilberto's narrative sort of matched the husbands and yeah. the relationship, and you, uh, you had to work out, is it the husband she's speaking about? Is it this imagined history of the author she's translating oh, Gilberto yeah. Owen and you had to sort of work out where it was and then the ghosts weaving in and out it was yeah <laughs> I, I think I got confused when I, there was a part where the husband was now in Philadelphia and I wasn't sure did he really did they really divorce or oh, I know <laughs> but then when they, when she was talking about the poet Gilberto was it talking about like and he had left his like he and his wife had split up and the wife had gone yeah. you know, getting somebody else. Was it the husband of the translator? Was it the author? Was it the story she's writing? Was it past history? I just. Yeah, like it kind of all blended into each other and the different threads kind of where real life started to be representing art and art started being real life. Yeah. I felt it mimicked 
not that I've watched a lot, but it was it's Yuri Herrera who had read those, who had written those other books I'd spoken yeah. about, and um, you know it's that Mexican telenovela style where it's mixing. It's not soap opera, but it's like drama with these fantastical elements, but are not what we in the West call fantasy. They're just representations, I think, of the Mexican culture of yeah. ghosts and family and history layers. And, oh, I just found it to be just really fascinating to go through that. Yeah, I think they kind of refer to it as magical realism, although yeah. magical, Latin magical realism seems very different to... Say Harry uh, Potter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, like someone like... Selman Rushdie, his magical realism yeah. is very different. Well, that's right. Style. It's more woven, I guess, through the mysticism, the basis of not that they are really telegraphed as religious people in this book, it's still woven into their cultural identity that they do reference their ancestors and they do have their superstitions, I guess, that are woven into the Mexican culture that, aren't overtly written about, aren't overt parts of the story. They're just sort of taken to be a given within the characters' lives that they have ghosts that come and it's just part of what happens. So, yeah. There. A line that kept coming up in the book that really stuck out that to define it is she says um, the book is is written is written oh, yeah, vertically and horizontally. It's a horizontal yeah. story told vertically and a vertical story told horizontally. Yeah, um, I think that was a beautiful way to describe it because everything was like there were so many different dimensions but you stuck trying to read it vertically. Yes, uh, but I loved how each paragraph, each little snippet, each scene was so stark almost, so concise, so small, yet could paint a word picture in that time. For instance, right at the front where she, where the translator meets Dolores, the girl with the chicken leg and the green crayon and the tree, like you could you could see that whole picture in half a page worth of writing and I just felt each snippet, each paragraph was so vivid. You could almost take out sections of it for a, a creative writing exercise for a student to just go and pick the themes and the narrative from each section and over and each almost isolated standalone paragraph wove into this amazing, quite bonkers whole book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I really like the son. He kept wanting to be a writer like his mother. Oh, that was very clever, but I also felt that the son was the voice of reason. So the child was yes. the one who was putting in the the reason to the mother, the one who was explaining his father's actions, the one who was <laughs> grounding the mother and making her, you know, yes. feel alive. And, yeah, very much the role reversal there. Yeah, he was writing a story. My daddy always comes home from the workery angry or something yeah. like that. Well, we all come home from the workery <laughs> angry at times. Yeah. Uh, um, do you – does this remind you of any other books that you've read? Does this remind you of anything else that you've read? Well, I think 
the one that comes closest and it's not even close is like water for chocolate. Yes. Okay. Gosh, it's a long time since I've read that. Mm, decades. Yeah, mm. that's another magical one I read recently. That whole magical realism blending into the emotions of the characters, I think mm. that's what stuck out. Even though they're very different and the narrative style is very different, but that's the one that kind of sticks out to me. That's really interesting because, yes, this one's a lot more stark, like a lot more stripped back, a lot less flowery, whereas yeah. like Water for Chocolate's very mystical and very, like, I don't know, a, a lot more feminine, I guess, which is really strange because, but it's a lot more sensual, whereas this is a lot colder, a lot more detached. Yeah. Yes. But still, I think you're right that how the the themes just weave through into the story. Yeah, I think the emotion and the way it plays into the book, I think that's what stuck out. How about you? Um, no, I I can't really think of anything that it um, reminded me of off the top of my head. What I, I did like, interestingly, was the New York time frame and how that really indicated a moment in the translator's life, like a real transience and how it set her up for that sense of fabrication and that sense of always reinventing her story and how she had to leave because she could no longer keep her reinventions solid in her head. So that's why she left New York. And I think that sort of set her up for being in Mexico ungrounded and her son was the one who needed to give her that sense of structure again. Gosh, that's a waffly way of saying I think the constant theme of having to reinvent herself yeah. was really like cemented well in the New York phases, I think. I think what stuck out to me when I first started reading it was the pretty much on the first page where she said she worked at a small press house a uh, small publishing house as a reader and translator, rescuing foreign gems. Nobody bought them. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that was really, yeah, it's just such a niche thing as well and all the different people she met through her time in New York. You can sort of imagine, I'm sort of guessing it's just based on what she was saying sort of. She was yeah. telegraphing it as the eight, like, like 90s, I guess, was just my sense of, the time yeah, frame, yeah. time frame that it was, and just you could, because I grew up around that time frame, and so you know I, I could find that to be very relatable. The types of people, the places she was going, all those different scenarios threw into there. Although sometimes it does feel like the small presses of translations, nobody's buying those books. Still no one buys them. (laughs) Even though I try to. It's hard to get them at the library. (laughs) Oh, it is hard. It definitely is hard to get. I definitely have to order them from overseas to get them, which is disappointing. What do you think the next, like, what do you think happens after the book ends? Because that that was the one thing I guess it really stumped me there. Like, um, Gilberto, Gilberto was disappearing and he was, weighing less and less but what happened yeah. what happened to the translator in the sun like i found that unknown at the end really sort of stumped me up <laughs> the earthquake there and, and I, but 
the cliffhanger book is always one that frustrates me as a reader. Tell me okay. what happens. <laughs> I have no idea what would happen. I think she just continue living her life the same way. Mm. No, no. It would, look, I think it was a great choice. I, I really did. I really did enjoy my time reading this this book. And had you read any of the um, like Ezra Pound and the poets there? Did you know any of their work? Uh, the only one that I've read was. Hemingway right at the beginning. I have read Hemingway, but I wasn't going to count him. <laughs> um, Bellardio, Roberto Bellardio oh, was yep. mentioned in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy his stuff. But no. he's a Chilean author. Uh, he doesn't really do with the um, realism like this book does. Right. Okay. But they're pretty pretty literary scene of his country is normally what he focuses on. Yeah. He was trying to start his own literary movement. Okay. It's very interesting that Salon movement that was Ezra Pound and Z and Gilberto and how all the artists had to congregate together and the imagined story of them congregating together as the translator was writing in her novel, but you know it from the Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald story as well, how they used to collaborate in person, whereas now writing scene is a lot more isolated venture, yeah. I guess. It's all built online and contact that way rather than meeting and bouncing ideas off one another. So it was you know, a different way of looking at it. And I think that whole salon era is romanticised and fascinating to somebody like us in the 21st century. Absolutely. Especially for us book nerds, which want more <laughs> of that kind of stuff. <laughs> that's right. That's right. What are you reading next, Michael, in translation? At the moment I'm reading August by Romina Paula, another oh, yeah. Argentinian book. And uh, this is one is... I'll look up the translator. Oh, I should know it. It's uh, Jennifer Croft. Yep. She she translated Flights, which won the Man Booker International yes. Prize. But yep. She's an amazing translator. Like she translated Flights in August last year, I believe. Mm. And one's in Polish and one's in Spanish. Uh, that's just unbelievable, isn't it? For us as Australians who are so isolated from the rest of the world, and we all really just speak English. It's amazing that people can do this. We barely speak English. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I speak good Australian, mate. <laughs> uh, where, where's your, uh, you can't say your favourite, but what, you seem to be reading a lot from South America recently, or is that a favourite for you? or? Well, Argentina has been really interesting at the moment. I've been reading a lot of women writers from Argentina. So that's August. Then there was the Things We Lost in the Fire, which was last podcast episode. Yeah, so and that. Die My Love by Ariana Horchek. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another one that's it really stuck out to me. It's 
about a mother, new new mother, her just given birth, and she's feeling trapped with her life. And some people say it's postnatal depression. Some people say it's postnatal psychosis. But it's one of those books that really packs a punch. It's very emotional, and it just even up even two months later, I'm still thinking about it. Okay. Well, and it's interesting because I read it on Kindle and I even enjoyed it reading it on Kindle and I hate using my Kindle. Yeah. I, I think mine's <laughs> run out of charge again. I never use it. So <laughs> not yeah, very good. I've tried to use it because it makes it easier to get books, especially translations. It but does. I have I have since bought the book, so. <laughs> I do that. I'm going to go out and buy my own copy of this now that, yeah, I finally read it, but no. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I didn't have a copy of this one, but I do now. I had a copy of Sidewalks. Oh, yeah. Which is another of her books from Coffee House Press. Mm-hmm. And I think I like this one. It's very different to the story of my teeth, which was the one I read, mm-hmm. I think, last year. I think it was very different style, but she what? seems to be an amazing writer with some interesting ideas. Are they all in this small size? You know, are there others in this sort of 150-page length or are they bigger? Yeah, yeah they're, they're normally about 150 to 200 pages. Yeah, and to keep – there's so much in Faces in the Crowd that's packed into 150 pages that I think you know, the skill to be able to do that and then the skill to translate it and keep it is amazing. I, I definitely will go and look for something else from Valeria here because it was, it was just a great way to go. What about classics in translation apart from, say, the Russians? Have you read, say, Calvino or um, other so the European? I have read Calvino. I love that book. Yeah. Um, I haven't read many of those classics. I'm still trying to play catch up with a lot of classic stuff. So that's like American, English and translated classics. It's just, yeah, so much time, so little time, so many books. So Yeah, well, when I first started, I was reading pretty much every genre and style because I wanted to find out what I liked and explore the world. Mm-hmm. But I think I've found what I'm passionate about, so hopefully that means I can focus a little better. It's interesting because, you're, yeah, you do seem to focus – on the translated fiction, whereas me, I'm like a magpie going, oh, that's interesting, let's go and check that out. Oh, that's interesting, let's go and check that out. And I think it's that challenge of broad versus deep and I'm a diverse reader, not necessarily a deep reader. Do you have any recommendations that you want to recommend the listeners? Recommendations for translated fiction or books in general? Uh, well, maybe it's not really anything we could recommend based on faces in the crowd, but maybe for translations that you love. Well, as I said, I was surprised at Yonez Bo's Macbeth. I was very, very surprised at how good I felt that to be. Earlier this year I also read... 
Lullaby, which yes, I again I don't think I loved it, but I still keep thinking about it. So that yeah, I yeah. I read that one. I think last month, or maybe it was this year. Last month it was. It yeah. was a very like powerful book. Yes, I felt like the because the author has small children and she's a journalist from Morocco, I feel like she's letting her own personal fears kind of play out on the page. Oh, 100%. 100%. I guess for me and the reader, like the general reader, not the concerted reader of translation like you are, it's hard-pressed to talk about translation without talking about Ferrante. And my mum is Italian and my brilliant friend and the whole series. I don't think I liked the books, but I can see my family. We're not Neapolitan, we're further north, but I can see the truth in it. I can see so much real in it. So uh, for me personally, that was a, a very poignant series of books, but I don't know how the general reader finds them. I think they're quite polarising. But other than that, my recommendations for translation are very slim on the ground. <laughs> I did get a compliment on Twitter saying that he was happy I never mentioned Bronte and So there um, you go. I've just no, killed your whole credibility. <laughs> but see, I, I, I can do it because, yeah, it's my non. Like it, it was very much a personal story for no, me. So. I, I quite like the My Brilliant Friend series. I I think her other books were just as interesting. They're a lot smaller. They have that style of trying to pack a big punch. Mm. Yeah. I think her other books are similar sort of style where she is trying to explore the female psyche in the cave kind of thing. A hundred percent. And it's so stark. It's so Honest, I think, and uh, we all have friend frenemies like that. We all <laughs> we all do indeed. So um, the other thing, I guess, on the Italian translation note, I remember my mum was reading Umberto Eco um, in Italian, and I used to think that was the coolest thing ever. My mum was way cool. <laughs> so that is pretty cool. Yeah. I'd love to be able to read some of those yeah. people in the original language. Umberto yes. Eco would be amazing. Yes. So my Italian is reasonable, but I haven't gone that far yet. <laughs> so one day. Have you read much, Echo? Um, only the two big ones, Foucault's Pendulum and Name of the Rose, that's it. So, um, yes. Foucault's Pendulum is probably my favourite. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I very much like them both. They were both university reads for me, so a long time ago. So I wouldn't mind revisiting them, actually. So, yeah. Yeah. Jump back in. I think we were planning a trip. Well, it was almost going to happen when we were going to be in Italy, in Rome. Oh, fantastic. planning which books to read. <laughs> oh, you have I to do that. I have to read some Echo while sitting in a cafe. A hundred percent. Not pretentious at all. <laughs> you just have to that's do it. <laughs> that's not pretentious. It's my aesthetic. That's right. That's right. You've got to stick to what you do. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, this has been very good fun, Michael. I hope I've brought some discussion points there for you for my non-translation reader, but I enjoyed that book. We'll have to pick another one to do in the near future. Yes, I'm glad you quickly jumped up at the opportunity to do it. It's 
I was worried it would be difficult to find people. Oh, no, I think you will find people. I think there are people out there like Celia and Miriam. Like, I think you can definitely get people who will be interested in reading translations. Yeah, I definitely have to hit them up. I'm worried that Miriam will make pick something that would be something I'd hate. <laughs> yeah, probably well. be an interesting discussion. <laughs> The other thing that I thought would be be interesting and I thought I would do with um, Celia as well would be to read her read it in one language and we read, like I read it in English as well oh, yeah. and just see how the experience of the book would be interesting. So I'm passing that idea on to you there right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was tempted to try and get Agnes on Beyond the Epilogue to read yeah. Soviet Milk in little laughy and, and then talk about yeah. that. But See, I, think, I kind of feel bad. I want people to pick a book they're interested in discussing rather than trying to make them read something from their own language. Oh, well, you know, send a few options like you did for me and it worked and we had fun. It was great. <laughs> well, my idea is normally to get the guests to pick the book. All right, next time I'll pick one. Yeah, well, it was a good opportunity to pick and I gave you a heap of choices. Yeah. No, it was great. So it was more about trying to find what was easily available. (laughs) That's it, because we both live in the boondocks. Yeah. Yes. All All right. right. Thank you for being a guest on the show. No, my pleasure, Michael. Definitely my pleasure. So I've really enjoyed our reading experience and I hope we can do it again. Yes, hopefully. Thank you for listening to the Lost in Translations podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please find us at patreon.com forward slash translations pod. If you want to follow us on social media, we are all over the interweb with translations pod being the username. You can find us at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Litzy. A special thanks to Leah from Hide and Seek and I will link to her YouTube channel down below and I highly recommend you check it out, especially if you're interested in Australian literature. Thank you for listening.